Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another solved case for my Curious Case series. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Any theories discussed in this video are just that, theories. They are not facts and they shouldn't be taken as such. And any opinions expressed in this video do not represent the views of myself, enforcement or anybody else connected to this case unless otherwise stated and with all that being said let's delve right into this case Elizabeth Selina Valid was born on Monday the 28th of May 1973 and lived in Richmond, Virginia, United States with her married parents, Jackie Valid and Hassan Valid. Jackie Berwick had come to the United States from Nottingham, England to start work as a nanny when she met an Iranian-born university professor named Hassan Valid. The couple quickly fell in love and subsequently got married in 1971. Elizabeth was born just a year after the marriage in 1972. According to some sources, Jackie actually flew back to Nottingham two months prior to Elizabeth's birth so that Elizabeth could be born in the UK and subsequently receive British citizenship. Jackie and Elizabeth then flew back to the United States following Elizabeth's birth where the small family lived together. Sadly, when Elizabeth was two years old, her parents' marriage fell apart. And in 1975, Elizabeth and her mother Jackie flew back to Nottingham to live with Jackie's parents, where the family remained separated for four years. Jackie and her son thereafter divorced in 1979. At just three years old, Elizabeth was described by her family and friends as being a very bright kid. She could already counts to 100 and was already able to recognize the majority of the alphabet. Elizabeth, known to her family and friends as just Lizzie, wasn't your stereotypical girly girl. She didn't like to play with dolls or that kind of thing, dress up. She was more interested in puzzles and jigsaws. Further to her apparent intelligence, Lizzie was also very self-willed and obstinate. According to some sources, she always got what she wanted and she was spoilt rotten by her grandparents, which is who they lived with. In a change of fortune for the mother-daughter family, Jackie landed a part-time job in one of her friend's boutiques when Lizzie was about five years old. This enabled her to rent a small two-bedroom apartment in the same area as her parents and was finally a positive step towards a happier future for both Jackie and Lizzie. As with most five-year-olds in the UK, Lizzie started her primary school education at about the age of four and five, where she not only learnt the usual stuff that you learn at primary school, she also had further lessons in the clarinet, the flute, and the piano. Lizzie's grandparents, who they no longer lived with, still remained quite a massive part of Lizzie's life, with her grandfather picking her up multiple times a week from primary school. This is a strong indicator of how three role model adults in Lizzie's life, who allowed her to get away with practically anything and allowed her to have practically anything she wanted 
um, was such a constant presence in her life. Lizzie often entertained her family through her music and was even known to write and perform her own funny little songs which she would sing and dance to. Her childhood could be viewed as blissful for Lizzie. She was extroverted, she had loving friends and family and she almost always got what she wanted. Her father though was largely removed from Lizzie's day-to-day -day life with her only receiving birthday and Christmas cards from him and the occasional phone call. However, when it became time for Lizzie's secondary school to be chosen, her father voiced his desires for her to be privately educated and go to a private secondary school. Uh, he even offered to pay the tuition fees. Lizzie, be that as it may, wanted to continue going to the same school as the friends she'd made at primary school. She wanted to go to the same secondary school as them, which was not this private school that her father wanted her to go to. She refused to even entertain the idea of changing schools, and because Lizzie typically got whatever she desired, upon graduation from primary school when she was 11 years old, she began to attend Arnold Hill, which was the local comprehensive school. Lizzie's mother, Jackie, would later tell the media that allowing her daughter to go to Arnold Hill and not making her go to this private school would be a decision that she would regret to the day she dies. Lizzie would frequently skip school without given reason, and it seems for the most part that she went largely unpunished for this. Her sudden change in behavior from the hardworking student at primary school to the rebellious student at secondary school coincided almost perfectly with her father's remarriage. Following her father's second marriage, Lizzie stopped receiving birthday and Christmas cards from him, and all contacts practically ceased. The ensuing aftermath of the removal of her father from her life, the hormonal changes from going through puberty, and the stresses of starting a secondary school, all evidently played a massive role in her sudden change of behavior. According to her mother, by the time Lizzie was 16 years old, she would often go out for uh, long periods of time at night without telling her mother what she was doing or where she was going or what time she'll be back. By the end of her final year in compulsory education, at just 16 years old, Lizzie dropped out of school with no qualifications. And seemingly she abandoned her dreams of following a career in the musical theater industry or the performing industry. As soon as Lizzie left school, she made it known to her mother and her grandparents that she wanted to move out and be her own person and get her own place as soon as possible. According to an article in the Evening Standard, after a series of rows with her family, Lizzie managed to convince her mother to pay the rent on an apartment in Nottingham, which she shared with a couple of other girls. And with that, Lizzie moved out of her mother's flat and began to further withdraw from her family. She did, at any rate, land a job as a receptionist for a firm of solicitors, though it became apparent that she found the job to be boring and subsequently quit. Simultaneously to this, Lizzie had begun to hang out with a group of people that could be described as being very flashy. The group regularly had party after party, primarily at Lizzie's flat, which actually ended with the neighbors making noise complaints and Lizzie being asked to leave. When Lizzie was 18 years old, her mother was shocked to learn that Lizzie had 
gotten pregnant. Lizzie was dating the baby's father at the time, and in light of the news, she moved with the baby's father down to London. Elizabeth gave birth to a daughter in 1992, whose name remains private for obvious reasons, though sadly, when her daughter was about a year and a half old, Lizzie went off on her own. She left the baby with the child's father. It was shortly following Lizzie's move to London, and around the same time of her daughter's birth in 1992, that a local tabloid newspaper exposed her for working at a massage parlor. It's important to note within the context that this massage parlor was just a front for sex work. Lizzie's mother Jackie was shocked to learn of this, believing that her daughter simply worked is, as a beautician and that she, she didn't partake in sex work and she had this you know, this strong job as a beautician. Subsequently, Jackie tried to persuade Lizzie to move back to Nottingham to live with her. However, all of her attempts were fruitless. After Lizzie had abandoned her daughter for reasons unknown, she met an elderly married man who was a property tycoon. I have to point out that this elderly married man I don't think he was actually elderly in the sense of being like, you know, 70s, 80s. I think it was just, he's just a middle-aged man, uh, but he's just described in quite a few sources as being elderly. This married man became obsessed with her and frequently took her out for dinners at the Savoy and at the Ritz in London. He even gave her a £400,000 flat in Edith Grove, which is just off Kings Road in Chelsea for her to live in, completely rent-free, bill-free, just she can have it. She began to live a life of luxury and upper class lifestyle, which she had never previously been exposed to. All Lizzie had to do was point at something and this man, this this property tycoon would just buy it for her. She frequently began wearing Valentino and Chanel, desperate to prove that she lived a life of riches unlike her mother. This rich man also offered Lizzie to pay for her breast and bottom implants, which she accepted. He also paid for Lizzie to go on a holiday with her mother Jackie at fancy and lavish European hotels. Though after nine years of living this luxury lifestyle, Lizzie grew bored. In 2001, she went on a holiday to the Caribbean where she met a much younger man who she brought back home to England. According to her mother, this man was, quote, repulsive and was very obviously on drugs. When Lizzie's sugar daddy learned of this man that Lizzie had been seeing, he politely asked her to move out of his flat and seize contact with her. From that point onwards, Lizzie's life began to go dramatically downhill. Her once weekly contact with her mother stopped in April of 2002, and unknowingly, this would be the last time that Jackie would ever see her daughter alive again. Jackie and her new partner, Peter, had both attempted to persuade her to come and live with them in Nottingham, Though sadly, Lizzie refused, and with that, seemingly sealed her fate. From April 2002, Jackie didn't receive any more phone calls or messages from her now 29-year-old daughter. When Christmas and New Year's came around, Jackie was devastated when her daughter failed to phone or message her, just to wish her a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It was in the early days of January when Jackie was sat watching television that her doorbell rang and her life was about to be turned completely upside down. On the other side of the door stood two police officers bearing tragic news about her daughter, Lizzie. The police officers asked Jackie whether her daughter had breast implants, to which she responded saying, yes, she did. Jackie was then informed that the remains of Lizzie had been identified through the use of 
the unique serial code on her breast implants. In other words, the police had recovered the remains of a woman and they, the, the remains would have been so, um, so mutilated that they were unable to identify her through any other means besides these unique serial codes on the breast implants. As you can imagine, these words would completely destroy any mother. The investigators had not only discovered the remains of 29-year-old Elizabeth Valid, but they had also discovered the remains of a 34-year-old mother of two, Bridget McLennan. The dismembered remains of both women were found on the 30th of December 2002 in a refuse bin in Camden, London. Not too much is known about Bridget McLennan, though we do know that she was born in New Zealand and that she had relatives in London. She, as with Elizabeth, had also turned to sex work to pay her bills and had previous convictions connecting to sex work and drug-related crimes. I was unable to ascertain much information about the history of Bridget in my research, though if you or anybody you know may have any more information about who Bridget was as a person, any mo anything more about her story, then feel free to leave that in a comment down below, as I'd hate to minimise Bridget's life to just a few moments in this video. It's my belief that every victim's story is just as important, and I want to be sure to use my platform to give a voice to those who may not necessarily have a voice anymore, and tell their story. The police knew that it was very likely, due to the nature of work of both women, that the perpetrator was likely to have been a client of both of them. Subsequently, the investigators on this case began to interview known friends of Elizabeth and Bridget to try to determine whether anyone saw them with anyone suspicious, or who even their last client was. From these informal interviews, it was determined that both women had both been last seen with the same man. Elizabeth had last been seen around the 19th of December 2002 with this man, and Bridget had last been seen the following week on the 24th of December 2002 with the same man. The man was identified through these interviews to be 51-year-old Anthony John Hardy, who was later nicknamed by the media as the Camden Ripper. But who was the Camden Ripper? Why did he do this? And were the murders preventable? To answer these questions, we first have to delve into the history of Anthony Hardy. I've taken a lot of information from the official inquiry into Anthony Hardy and his care, uh, which I have listed in my sources down below. I will be omitting certain parts of the timeline from the inquiry in this video, just because they don't really add anything more, um, and they don't really give any more context behind the crime, they don't really add anything to the case. Though, if you are interested, I do go advise that you go read the report, as I say, it's listed down below. Anthony John Hardy was born on Thursday the 31st of May 1951 in Burton-upon-Trent, Staffordshire, England, to a family of coal miners. According to my sources, Anthony had a fairly regular upbringing with nothing of note occurring. Upon graduation from compulsory education, Anthony went on to study at Imperial College London, where he successfully obtained a degree in engineering. While he was at university, Anthony met a woman called Judith Dwight, who he would later go on to marry. Following his graduation from university in the 1970s, Anthony moved with Judith to Tasmania, Australia, where he began work for a major company and eventually became the manager of that company. There, the couple had four children, two boys and two girls. According to some sources, as early as 1982, Anthony Hardy began to 
display some symptoms of an underlying mental illness. It was during the year of 1982 that Anthony tried to brutally murder his wife by hitting her over the head with a frozen water bottle before dragging her into the bathroom and trying to drown her in the bath. After striking his wife with the frozen water bottle while she slept peacefully in her bed, Anthony carried his wife, who was semi-conscious, to the bathroom where he had filled up a bath. He then forced her head under the water in an attempt to drown her. She woke up during this and tried to pull the plug from the bath, but the plug had been kind of sealed, so she, it was, she was unable to pull it out. She was saved only by her oldest child, who heard the screams and came running into the bathroom and started screaming at Anthony. He told the police that if his wife didn't behave as he liked, then a bad side of him would come out. It's important to note that no criminal charges were brought against Anthony for this attack, though he was admitted to a psychiatric hospital in Queensland, uh, where he stayed for about a month or two before uh, being discharged. Later in 1982, Anthony kidnapped his wife and locked her in a hotel room, refusing to let her leave. He threatened to kill her, but he changed his mind when she brought up their children, and he subsequently let her go. Immediately following that, Judith filed for divorce. The couple actually decided to try and work on their problems and iron everything out and, you know, try marriage therapy, determined to make the marriage work, but that was to no avail. It wasn't until four years later in 1986 when the couple finally legally divorced and their papers went through and Judith won full custody of all four children. Soon after the divorce, Judith returned to England with the children to start a new life and to turn a new leaf. Anthony also followed him to England and during November of 1986, a restriction order was completed which required Anthony to stay away from them and from stay away from their family home. Unsurprisingly, Anthony broke this restraining order and was subsequently in prison for a brief period. After his short stint in prison, Anthony decided to go get psychiatric help and he was actually diagnosed with peripheral neuropathy. If you're unaware of what peripheral neuropathy is, according to the NHS website, peripheral neuropathy is a disorder that develops when nerves in the body's extremities, such as the hands, feet and arms, are damaged. Further to this, the NHS website goes on to say that in the UK, it's estimated that almost 1 in 10 people aged 55 or over are affected by peripheral neuropathy. Neuropathy. People diagnosed with this disorder, particularly people who present sensory symptoms, are likely to develop depression and anxiety due to the chronic pain that such a nerve injury causes. Anthony Hardy, following the diagnosis of peripheral neuropathy, was also diagnosed with manic depression and was prescribed medication to aid in relieving his depressive symptoms. According to ForensicOutreach.com, he spent the majority of the 90s homeless and had spent the majority of his time living in numerous hostels and shelters in London. It was during this period that Anthony began to abuse substances and alcohol which, no doubt, worsened any mental illness or psychological issues that he suffered from at this time. Anthony also had a few run-ins with law enforcement during this period due to aggressive behaviour and theft, which actually saw him serve uh, short jail sentences. Eventually, in the year 2000, he was granted council housing and subsequently moved into a one-bedroom flat on Royal College Street in Camden. This particular area wasn't far from King's Cross, which, according to some sources, was an area in which sex workers and their clients frequented. It is also argued that Anthony had chosen this flat from choice-based letting listings, 
primarily due to the fact that it was in an area which sex work occurred, an area which would become a hunting ground for the Camden Ripper. The following accounts of Anthony's movements is taken from the official inquiry into Anthony's care. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can find this report in the description, in the citations. Some parts are exact quotes from the inquiry reports, while others are paraphrased. At 6.40am on the 20th of January 2002, the police were called to a flat on Royal College Street, the same building in which Anthony Hardy resided. On the front door of the flat in large black letters was written, F*** you, you're a c the police officers noted that the lower part of the door was covered in a liquid. The police noted that the lower part of the door from the letterbox down was covered in a liquid and there was a pool of liquid bubbling uh, at the foot of the door. The police officers also noted that that same liquid could be found on the inside of the door, indicating that it had been poured through the letterbox. Fortunately, the owner of the flat was healthy, fine, safe. Nothing really seemed, nothing seemed amiss with her. She was perfectly fine. Though this vandalism obviously caused significant distress. In what sounds like evidence from a murder mystery drama that you'd see on TV, a trail of drips and footprints led from the bubbling pool of liquid on the floor down to a flat uh, below, on the floor below. Initially, there was no answer when authorities knocked on the door of flat four, although after police returned a short while later with a few more officers, the door was answered by the tenant, Anthony Hardy. Anthony was immediately questioned by the police uh, in regards to the graffiti and the criminal damage to the flat above. During the questioning, he confessed to having poured car battery acid through the letterbox using a modified plastic bottle as a funnel. He then presented the officers with the spray paint can that he had used to graffiti on the front door of uh, the neighbor's flat. Towards the conclusion of the questioning, an officer noted that there was a locked room in Anthony Hardy's flat. When asked about it, Anthony told the police officers that it was his boarder's room and he didn't have the keys to it. Then the police arrested Anthony on criminal damages charges. And while they were doing so, they grabbed a coat for Anthony to put on so that they could take him to the police car. And as the police officer took this coat from the coat rack, he noticed that there was something hard in one of the pockets. He reached in and pulled out a key. The officer then tried using this key on the locked door and uh, to their dismay, it opens the door and it unlocked. And what would have been just a case of a neighbor fight gone wrong, turned into a murder investigation. Inside the room, the police officers found the dead body of a woman lying on the bed with a towel covering her face. The officers turned to Anthony and noted that he was bright red and sweating profusely. Subsequently, the officers arrested Anthony on suspicion of murder. When crime scene investigators arrived on the scene, smudges of blood were found on the walls next to the bed and on the pillows. There was also a bucket containing soapy warm water and a sponge next to the bed. It's important to point out that when the CSI team arrived on the scene, the bucket of soapy water was still warm, which indicated that it had been filled with warm water not so long before it had been found. Clothes were also found in the room, including a hooded sweatshirt with a blood stain in the hood, consistent with a small wound found on the head of the dead woman. More of her clothing was found to have been cut into 
pieces, including her bra and tights, and these appear to have been removed post-mortem. The police were able to use the possessions of this woman to quickly identify her to be 38-year-old Sally White. Presumably, they identified her through bank cards or identification uh, in her purse or handbag. Sally had last been seen alive the day prior on the 19th of January 2002 at a homelessness charity. She had actually been homeless for a number of years and used sex work as a means to buy food and temporary accommodation. The police determined that it was highly likely that Anthony Hardy had met Sally White due to sex work and he was a client of hers. When questioned at the police station, Anthony Hardy responded to all comments pertaining to Sally White with the words, no comments. On the 22nd of January 2002, Anthony Hardy was brought to court where he was charged with criminal damage. He was actually seen at court by two medical professionals who are part of the psychiatric division team. He was actually seen at court by two medical professionals who were part of the psychiatric diversion team. The psychiatric team told the courts that Anthony had given them a version of events for the 19th and 20th of January that led to the criminal damage. On Saturday the 19th of January, Anthony had drunk until he couldn't drink no more. He had even ensured that his fridge was stocked with more alcohol so that he could stay drunk. He claims to have blacked out, but that he does remember pouring battery acid through his neighbor's door and painting the graffiti. He had apparently done this due to a water drip that had, uh, he had apparently done this due to a water drip that had come from his neighbor's flat down into his own flat. And he had written a letter to her, but she hadn't replied or done anything about it. And thus he carried out the attacks. The neighbor alleges that this wasn't the first time that he had used battery acid in attacks with an incident occurring in November previously with a different neighbor and with various vandalisms of her car. Anthony admitted that he wasn't aware of these incidents. He didn't know that they had happened, but he also admitted that he couldn't guarantee that he wasn't responsible for them, and that was on account of his alcoholism. The medical professionals also determined that Anthony was very depressed, and it was very likely that he would attempt on his own life. After being found guilty on charges of criminal damages, Anthony Hardy was taken to the Pentville prison, where he carried out his sentence until the 8th of April 2002, which is when he was transferred to a psychiatric hospital. As Anthony was carrying out his sentencing in prison, a post-mortem examination was conducted on Sally White to determine her cause of death. And this post-mortem was carried out by a consultant forensic pathologist. This pathologist's report concluded that Sally's death was consistent with natural causes and was a result of coronary artery disease, which is the preponderant evidence. The wound to the head was consistent with a single blunt impact upon a stumble or collapse and contacts with the back of the head with a broad hard surface or the floor. The wound had not caused her death. No other significant injuries were found. Effectively, this report concluded that Sally White had suffered a heart attack, which she had passed away from, and as she suffered this heart attack, she fell to the floor and hit her head. Important to note, the report states that she had not been killed by this blow to the head. Due to this, the Crown Prosecution Service determines that there was not... Due to this, the Crown Prosecution Service determines that there was insufficient evidence to charge Anthony Hardy with the murder or even manslaughter 
of Sally White, and subsequently he was only charged with that charge of criminal damages, which he had pled guilty to. Anthony Hardy's stint in psychiatric care was complex and detailed. Uh, it was heavily recorded. So I've elected to omit some details that I don't believe are relevant to this case uh, or relevant to the context of this video. On the 12th of March 2002, while Anthony was still in prison serving his sentence, he was actually sectioned due to his suffering of depression and his intrusive thoughts of self-harm. On the 8th of April 2002, he was admitted to the Mornington Unit at St Pancras Hospital under Section 37 of the Mental Health Act. Interestingly, on the 8th of April, he was assessed by a consultant psychiatrist who determined that he showed no symptoms or signs of mental illness at all. Though he was referred 10 days later to the Alcohol Advisory Service for his alcoholism. Towards the end of April, Anthony was transferred to the Cardigan Ward at St. Luke's Hospital. As that ward permits escorted leave and was better equipped to handle alcoholism cases. He stayed in the Cardigan Ward over the summer and was further referred to the Alcohol Recovery Project so that he could begin his journey to recovery and rehabilitation back into society. In the inquiry report, it's detailed that on several of his unsupervised leaves throughout summer and autumn, he had returned smelling of alcohol uh, or that he was drunk. Due to this, his leave was suspended and then later reinstated numerous times. His mental health was also regularly assessed and he was prescribed a repeat prescription for uh, antidepressants and mood stabilizers. On the 14th of November 2002, Anthony Hardy was discharged as a formal patient from the hospital following a meeting. He was still an informal patient though and had to see his care coordinator weekly, return to the ward weekly for medication and physical observations, and to continue to attend the alcohol advisory service and the alcohol recovery project. Medical staff on the ward, his care coordinator, the ward manager, and people from the alcohol advisory service and from the housing department concluded that Anthony had made great progress, and Anthony told them that he felt dramatically better than before. He was made aware that an injunction would be put in place ordering him to stay away from his neighbours and not to bother them. Anthony told them all that he would also continue taking his medication. The following day on the 15th, Anthony packed the last of his belongings that were at the ward and told the staff there that he would come back the next morning to collect them. Though he didn't actually return to the ward until the 30th of November. It was noted that he did present and appear to be mentally stable. He didn't seem to be drunk or anything like that when he finally picked up the last of his stuff from the ward. A month and a half later, the dismembered remains of Elizabeth Valid and Bridget McLannan were found by a homeless man in a refuse bin that was located close to Anthony's flat. As we discussed earlier, we know that both Elizabeth and Bridget were last seen with Anthony Hardy, and due to this, and due to the facts that the remains of both women were found in a refuse bin close to his home, police officers obtained a search warrant for his flat. The police had to force their way into the flat on the 30th of December 2002, and when they got inside, they found a hacksaw with a piece of human skin attached to the blade. They also also discovered more remains from Elizabeth Valid inside the flat. Police further found a devil's mask and a note that read Sally White RIP along with Elizabeth's blood in the bathroom. Anthony had actually taken 44 pornographic photographs of the two sex workers who he had sent to a friend to have them developed. Upon seeing the negatives, 
uh, this friend forwarded them to the police. The wrists of each victim and the ankles of each victim couldn't be seen in the images. The devil's mask that the police had found in Anthony's flat had been placed on Elizabeth's face in these images to conceal it. Both women were dead when the images were taken. Anthony had positioned the women in different poses for the photographs. They were all taken in his bed and they were all naked. They were all taken in his bed and in all the images, the two women were naked. A baseball hat was also put on the head of the two women to further conceal their features. A warrant for Anthony Hardy's arrest was immediately issued, but it wouldn't be until four days later on the 3rd of January, 2003, that he was found and arrested. Anthony had gone to pick up his prescription of insulin and the medical staff had immediately contacted the authorities. When the police came to arrest him, he put up a fight. Anthony knocked one of the police officers unconscious and even stabbed one of the other police officers through the hand. He actually dislocated that same police officer's eye from its socket, uh, but despite these injuries, the police officer was able to keep Anthony detained until backup arrived. Anthony was arrested wearing the same baseball hat that he had used in the photographs uh, of the dead women. When questioned by the police, Anthony refused to cooperate, answering with no comments to every question. Despite this, there was sufficient evidence for a trial to take place, and subsequently, Anthony Hardy, who was nicknamed the Camden Ripper by the press, was charged with the murders of Elizabeth Valid, Bridget McLennan, and Sally White. In a strange turn of events, the pathologist that had conducted the post-mortem examination on Sally White and concluded that she had died of a heart attack was actually struck off the medical register. He had wrongly identified the cause of death for numerous victims. The trial against Anthony Hardy commenced in November of 2003, and he initially entered the trial with plans to fight the charges on grounds of mental illness, though as soon as he went to plea, he changed his plea to guilty on all charges. On the 25th of November 2003, Anthony Hardy was sentenced to three life sentences for the three murders. The judge told Anthony during the closing of the trial, only you know how your victims met their deaths, but the unspeakable indignities to which you subjected the bodies of the last two victims in order to satisfy your depraved and perverted needs are in no doubt. Following his sentencing, an independent inquiry into Anthony Hardy's care was uh, ordered to try and determine whether the murders could have been preventable. The medical staff on the ward in which he had stayed with due to mental illness problems had determined that he posed an extremely low risk to society when they discharged him, though just less than a month later, he brutally murdered two women. The inquiry reports concluded that even with the benefit of hindsight, Anthony Hardy alone was responsible for his actions. The fact that the person who had murdered three people also happened to have a mental illness was coincidental and made no contribution to the murders. It was found that there was no failure at all of the health services. In Anthony's case, it was ruled by the judge that he must never be released from prison, and it was actually placed on a list of lifelong tariff prisoners. Anthony's motive for the murders was purely sexual. It was also that he could get sexual gratification. He destroyed the lives of numerous families to gratify his perversions, 
and I can only applaud the Crown Prosecution Service and all the police officers that worked on this case in ensuring that this monster stays behind bars until the day he dies rotting. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. If you want to see more true crime cases just like this one, then be sure to hit that subscribe button and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new true crime video. Don't forget to follow me over on Instagram and Twitter. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.